special edition of Contemporary Communication. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Jones, and today we're going to take a little walk with Plato. When I started our walk today, I wanted to be sure to capture some of the noise of traffic. There are three dialogues that I want to look at. The Symposium, the Gorgias, and the Phaedrus. Now what's interesting to me about the Phaedrus, and the, I'm not the first to notice this by any means, but an interesting point of the dialogue is that the setting is outside the walls of Athens. This is significant for scholars of Plato and Socrates. And while I'm not as interested in the historical Socrates, this element of the context plays an important role in understanding the text. So it's something that I want to hopefully come back to as we continue to ponder this uh, particular dialogue. Why does Socrates go on a walk with Phaedrus outside the walls of Athens? What is it about being in nature under a spreading oak tree listening to the sounds of birds, insects, beside a pool. What is it that makes that setting appropriate for the conversation? Socrates and Phaedrus engage in several conversations during their time together. But today I want to focus on just one tiny conversation that happens really at the end of their time together. In that conversation, Socrates has already held forth on the nature of love. And we'll come back to that conversation on love because, again, thinking about the philosophical implications of Socrates' comments, his discourse on love is as much about the nature of education as it is about any historical facts of love in ancient Greece. But the dialogue section I want to look at today really has to do with the invention of writing. In the original assignment that I gave the reading for the first week of class, we looked at Socrates' final comments. It started with page 78, if you still have your old PDF scans. And Socrates begins with a story. Do you know how best to please God when you either use words or discuss them in general? Phaedrus replies, not at all, do you? And Socrates says, I can tell you what I've heard from the ancients, though they alone know the truth. However, if we could discover that for ourselves, would we still care about the speculations of other people? That's a silly question, Phaedrus replies. Still, tell me what you say you've heard. And Socrates begins the story. Well, this is what I've heard. Among the ancient gods of uh, Necritus in Egypt, there was one to whom the bird called the Ibis is sacred. The name of that divinity was Thoth. It was he who first discovered number and calculation, geometry and astronomy, 
as well as the games of droughts and dice, and above all else, writing. Now the king of all Egypt at that time was Thamus, who lived in the great city in the upper region that the Greeks call Egyptian Thebes. Thamus they call Ammon. Thoth came to exhibit his arts to him, and urged him to disseminate them to all the Egyptians. Thamus asked him about the usefulness of each art, and while Thoth was explaining it, Thamus praised him for whatever he thought was right in his explanations, and criticized him for whatever he thought was wrong. The story goes that Thamus said much to Thoth, both for and against each art, which it would take too long to repeat. But when they came to writing, Thoth said, O king, here is something that, once learned, will make the Egyptians wiser and will improve their memory. I have discovered a potion for memory and for wisdom. Thamus, however, replied, O oh, most expert Thoth, one man can give birth to the elements of an art, but only another can judge how they benefit or harm those who will use them. And now, since you are the father of writing, your affection for it has made you describe its effects as the opposite of what they really are. In fact, it will introduce forgetfulness into the soul of those who learn it. They will not practice using their memory because they will put their trust in writing, which is external and depends on signs that belong to others instead of trying to remember from the inside completely on their own. You have not discovered a potion for remembering, but for reminding. You provide your students with the appearance of wisdom, but not with its reality. Your invention will enable them to hear many things without being properly taught, and they will imagine that they have come to know much, while for the most part, they will know nothing, and they will be difficult to get along with since they will merely appear to be wise, instead of really being so. In this story, Socrates introduces the origins of writing and explains their evaluation by a third party. He explains that the originator of the art of writing discusses them as a great boon for all mankind. They will make the Egyptians the wisest of all people. It's a tonic for memory. But the wise king recognizes the flaw in this thinking. Writing is not a cure for memory. It is merely a reminder. What is that distinction? Why is it significant that writing isn't the same as memory? And this is a question that I think gets us to the heart of understanding what happens when literacy is introduced into a culture. What Socrates is dealing with here outside the walls of Athens is the question of whether writing benefits the culture or whether writing is damaging. Now, the reason that I usually assigned this particular text is because all of the objections raised against writing are also raised against every new technology. Think about it. Haven't you heard that your smartphone is making you dumber? That kids these days are addicted to their Facebook or their Instagram. They're all over their TikToks. They can't think for themselves. They can't puzzle out the great mysteries of the universe. They can't read. Those same criticisms were leveled against television when it was introduced. Also, the same benefits. 
It was claimed that television was going to be the great equalizer, bringing the greatest lectures and discussions and debates into the homes of the average individual. But at the same time, the critique was that television would make us stupider. It would prevent us from gaining the literacy that allowed us to function as free persons in a civilized society. This isn't the same critique that Postman will offer. There's a little bit more to Postman's criticism of television, but what's often heard, and often repeated, is simply the idea that television rots the brain. Ah, but before television, there was radio. It's unlikely that you've heard a strong criticism of radio, but that's mostly because strong criticisms of radio were drowned out by the criticisms of television, and later by the computer, and later by the internet, and later by the smartphone, and later by social media. Ah, but even before radio, there were strong criticisms against reading books. The reading of books, it was said, would lead to idleness. It would prevent one from really understanding and grasping the important issues of one's day. The same sort of binge-watching of television that we see today was once present when people binge-read. In fact, one of the things I found most interesting in working on my dissertation was how Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of Sherlock Holmes, had used the printing medium of his day to capture audiences and hold them to not a story, but a recurrent series of characters. Uh, there's all sorts of interesting things that go into that, um, from Dickens' innovations in the serialized novel of his particular forms, to the serialization of other novels. Uh, have you considered why Tolstoy is so long? <laughs> well, in part, it fits the medium of its day. Now, I'm not suggesting that Tolstoy wrote in a serialized form, but the first exposure of many native English speakers to Tolstoy's work was in serialization. The bits and pieces of his grand narrative arcs were disseminated and distributed piecemeal. So, books were essentially the binge reading of short stories. And so, the criticisms that we find today of Netflix and the problems of binge-watching television once were applied against binge-reading of novels. And so, it's with these ideas in mind that I would encourage you to re-engage with the Phaedrus, and particularly with Socrates' final comments about the nature of writing. Because for Socrates, writing does introduce a problem. And it's the problem of wisdom. And with that, I'm going to go finish my walk through the woods. And I hope you'll join me next time when perhaps we'll dig a little bit deeper into what it means to be wise. <laughs>